You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Gospel of John, the ninth chapter. We will read together verses 13 through verse 23. Verse 13, they brought to the Pharisees the man who was formerly blind. Now it was a Sabbath on the day when Jesus made the clay and opened his eyes. Then the Pharisees also were asking him again how he received his sight. And he said to them, he applied clay to my eyes and I washed and I see. Therefore, some of the Pharisees were saying, this man is not from God because he does not keep the Sabbath. But others were saying, how can a man who is a sinner perform such signs? And there was a division among them. So they said to the blind man again, What do you say about him since he opened your eyes? And he said, He's a prophet. The Jews then did not believe it of him that he had been blind and had received his sight until they called the parents of the very one who had received his sight and questioned them, saying, Is this your son who you say was born blind? How, then how does he now see? His parents answered them and said, We know that this is our son and that he was born blind, but how he now sees we do not know. Or who opened his eyes? We do not know. Ask him. He is of age. He will speak for himself. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that if anyone confessed him to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. For this reason, his parents said, He is of age. Ask him. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you that you have redeemed us by your blood, by the blood of your Son. We thank you that you have paid the price for our salvation and atoned for our sin. And as your people now, we gather together today to rejoice in your presence and to hear from you in your word. We thank you that that redeeming love has been revealed to us in the pages of Scripture. For from creation, we would know of your greatness and your splendor and your majesty and your power. But we would never know of your love for us apart from what you have revealed to us in your word. And so we come now to your word and our heart's desire is to hear truth. We pray that you would speak to us through your word. We pray that you would feed us for we hunger for your word and for truth. May we rejoice together in the goodness of our God today as we see him displayed in the pages of Scripture. We ask this in Christ's precious name. Amen. Well, our study in John chapter 9 is not just the study of a miracle, a man who was blind who then is given the ability to heal. It is as much a study also of unbelief, the causes, the motivations, and the behavior of unbelief and of unbelievers. John told us at the beginning of his gospel what, or sorry, John tells us at the end of his gospel what the purpose of him writing the gospel was. So that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ and that believing you might have life in his name. John wants us to believe that Jesus is the Christ, that he is the Son of God, and by that belief we have life in his name. And this entire gospel, John is trying to move his readers toward believing in Christ by doing two things. He tries to move us toward belief in Christ by showing us all of the blessings and the benefits and the results when we believe in Christ. So we see in chapter 3 that we are born again, we get new life. In chapter 4 that we have living water, we never thirst again. In chapter 5 that we are delivered from the wrath of God and we are raised up with Christ and resurrected at the end of time. In chapter 6 we get the bread of life and we hunger and thirst after eternal life. No more. In chapter 7, we get the living water who is the sun. Chapter 8, we get the light of the world so that we no longer walk in darkness. All of those are the blessings that come to believers. 
And listen, even some of the most profound and exciting and thrilling blessings are yet to be revealed in chapter 10 and 13 through 17. Those are the chapters that are just loaded with blessings to believers. So that's the first way that John does it. He's trying to move us toward belief by showing to us all of the blessings and benefits that accrue to those who place their faith in the Son. Then he tries to convince us to believe by showing us something else, the other side. It's almost like he's showing us two sides of the corn, uh, coin, not corn. Corn has more than one side. Two sides of the coin. The other side of the coin is the hideousness, the ugliness of unbelief. And so we have plenty of unbelievers in John's Gospel. We have plenty of false believers in John's Gospel. People who profess to believe, say they believe, look like they believe, like Judas, but are not believers at all. They're people who have professed something, but have never truly been born again. And we see the ugliness of that unbelief when Faced with the truth, we see how they respond to the glory of God and the truth of Scripture and the truth of what Christ says and the revelation of God in Jesus Christ. That He came unto His own and His own did not receive Him. They did not believe Him. And they rejected Him and they crucified Him and they hate Him. And this entire Gospel and really the life of Christ is is an argument that the benefits accrue to those who believe and then you see the hideousness of unbelief. And John is trying to show us if you fall in the camp of an unbeliever, It is a hideous position, an ugly position, an irrational position to be in. Oftentimes we think of unbelief in this way. We think that unbelief is benign. That it's really not that big of a deal. I mean, so he doesn't believe. I was there at one time. There was a time when I didn't believe. So I can understand. I believe some pretty bizarre things. That the earth was created only a few thousand years ago. That God did it in seven 24-hour days. I believe that God became a man, born of a virgin, died on a cross, under the curse, so that I can have salvation just by faith, just by grace. After all, I would have to confess, those are some pretty unbelievable things that I believe. And so I can see and understand why some people would not believe, why they would reject that. Sometimes that's how we think of unbelief. But to think that way of unbelief and unbelievers is to be completely unbiblical in our assessment of really the heart and nature of unbelief. You see, unbelief is damnable wickedness. It is wickedness. And it is wicked because of the amount of truth that must be denied in order to maintain it. Belief is not an irrational response to the evidence. It is unbelief that is an irrational response to the evidence. I was having a conversation with, I wouldn't even call him a buddy, as a complete stranger on Facebook, but it was on a, a mutual friend's uh, Facebook page. And I was kind of going back and forth, back and forth with this guy. and never met him, I'd never seen his name even before. And finally, in the course of the conversation, he finally came to the point where he said, look, if you are a creationist and a young earther at that, then we have nothing else, to, I have nothing else to say to you. He said, and this is what, this was in his comment, I believe in ration and reason and science and empiricism, and you're willing to accept anything that is said to you. And so I was thinking to myself, okay, let me get this straight. You believe that nothing exploded nowhere at some point in the infinite past for no reason, and created magically this organized everything. The screams of a designer. That's rational. And I believe that design comes from a designer, that a creation proves a creator. And I'm the irrational one. I'm the unscientific one. I'm the illogical one. But do you see how the tables are turned? Those who deny and, un- and do not believe, they are the ones who call themselves rational. Unbelief is the most irrational, illogical, idiotic, and insane position that anybody can take. Because... The true and right response to all of the evidence in every area of life is belief in the one true God because He has revealed Himself in creation 
And he has revealed himself in scripture. And to deny that is to unbelieve in the, it is to, to not believe in the face of what can only be called overwhelming evidence. That is why unbelief is damnable wickedness. It's not benign. It's not, yeah, you believe or you don't believe. Unbelief suppresses the truth in unrighteousness, Romans says. God has made the invisible things about himself evident in creation so that all men are without excuse. He has revealed himself in creation. He has revealed himself in conscience. And he has revealed himself in Christ. And he has revealed himself in scripture. All four of those revelations of God. And so the man is without excuse. An unbelieving man, Romans says, knows the truth about God. He knows it. Every atheist or professed atheist in the world is really truly a believer in God. But here's what they do. They take the truth, what they know to be true about God from creation, and they suppress it, Romans 1 says. Suppress it. They hold it down in unrighteousness so that they can live wicked and immoral lives. So that they can in their own minds convince themselves that there's no judgment for my sin. So they take what they know to be true about God, they suppress it and hold it down. And I'll tell you something, that is exhausting for an unbeliever to do it. It is exhausting to be that irrational that long. They suppress that truth and unrighteousness, and they come up with any possible conceivable explanation for the evidence that they can devise in their little wicked hearts in order to explain away the evidence so that they do not have to come to the conclusion that the one true God of Scripture actually exists. So that they do not have to confess the truth. This is what we see unbelief doing in John chapter 9. Now let me quickly review for you. We've seen the man who was born blind. He has now been healed. We saw his reaction to that. We saw him go back into his neighborhood. We saw his neighbor's reaction to his healing and his his response or his answer to his neighbor's questions. Then we saw the Pharisee's reaction to that healing and his response to the Pharisee's questions. And now today in verses 18 to 23, we're going to look at the Pharisees, and this man's parents, his parents. And here is where we see the ugly face of unbelief rear its head, and we get to see it for what it is. This is this is a group of people who are so biased in their hatred for Jesus that they will come up with any conceivable theory rather than to simply acknowledge what is true and staring them right in the face. Look at verse 18. Then the Jews, that is the Pharisees, this council, this unofficial council that sort of has an official capacity of sorts, the Jews then did not believe it of him, that is the man born blind, that he had been blind and had received sight, until they called the parents of the very one who had received his sight and questioned them, saying, Is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? Now their unbelief has gotten to the point now where it is absurd. It's almost absurd. They have heard the testimony of the neighbors. They have heard the testimony of the man. And now they have come to the conclusion, well, maybe he wasn't blind after all. Maybe his, his healing has some other explanation. Why would, they, why would they disregard the testimony of the neighbors and disregard the testimony of the man himself? The answer to that was last week. Because of this dilemma, they are on the horns of this dilemma. Do you remember their dilemma? Jesus did a miracle on the Sabbath, verse 14. So in their mind... He was a Sabbath breaker, not because he actually violated any Sabbath law, any Sabbath regulation, but because he had violated all of their Sabbath traditions. And they equated their traditions with God's law. So if Jesus had did a miracle miracle on the Sabbath, then that made Jesus, in their mind, a Sabbath breaker. But how is it that a Sabbath breaker can do miracles? How is it that somebody who violates God's law could have the power of God to do what this man does? And this was the dilemma. See, if they admit or confess that Jesus is from God, 
then they have to jettison all of their Sabbath traditions and admit that their entire self-righteous, works-based religion of self-righteousness and self-aggrandizement is is a fraud and that they have been lying to the people. They have to humble themselves and confess that they are in the wrong and that this man is their Messiah. They don't want to jettison all their Sabbath traditions. They don't want to confess that He is from God. But on the other hand, if they deny that He is from God, then what do they have to do? They have to explain the miracle. If He's not from God, how does He do the miracle? now, Now they've got these two options. They do not want and they will not give up their Sabbath traditions and they will not confess that Jesus is from God. So then they have to do the only thing that they that they can do and that is to explain away the miracle. To come up with some other explanation for the miracle. So verse 18 says, The Jews then did not believe it of him that he had been blind and received sight until they called the parents of the very one who had received his sight. Now the word until there seems to suggest that there came a point after the parents' testimony that they believed. Not that they believed in Jesus, or believed what Jesus said, or even believed that He had been healed, but that they believed that He was actually born blind. See, they deny that He was... They're not questioning whether or not the man can see. What they are really denying or questioning is whether He had ever been blind in the first place. And so they called the man's parents, and the word called there probably refers to an official summons, like to stand before a council or a court and to give testimony of something. It seems to be a, a, some, somewhat of a quasi-official gathering that is taking place here. And his parents have been called in or summoned to give their testimony as to this man who they claim was born blind, they claim is his son. And so the, the official nature of this thing is not lost on, on the parents because you're going to see in a moment that they were fearful. And they were fearful because they understood we're standing before a council and we're giving testimony and this is some sort of an official gathering. These people have the ability to put them out of the synagogue. So they deny that the man was ever blind to begin with, and then he, and that having been blind in some way, he had received his sight. They denied this until they called his parents. Now ask yourself this. If you are the Pharisees, and you have to come up with an explanation as to how this person who says he was blind and now says he can see, you have to explain away the miracle, what are your options? If you're not going to confess that Jesus is a man sent from God, you have to deny the miracle, What are your options? Well, I could come up with three of them. First, you could deny or they could deny that this man was actually the well-known and familiar blind beggar who sat at the temple gates. I could say it's a case of mistaken identity. This man looks like the beggar. The real beggar is out there somewhere. Maybe this man who looks like that beggar and sounds like this beggar mugged the beggar because the beggar couldn't see, mugged him, blindfolded him. We didn't need to do that. Just mugged him and took him to some secret, undisclosed location, and kept him quiet and silent, and then he dressed up like the beggar man, and now he is per, 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 uh, perpetuating this myth that he has he was the blind beggar. The real blind beggar is still somewhere out there. And we'll, This is just a case of mistaken identity. This guy is pretending to be him. And they could, they could suggest that. They could also suggest that maybe this blind beggar was not really blind blind. He was not fully blind. Just partially blind. Maybe he could just see really poorly, and then having been healed, he sort of can see a little bit better. Jesus anointed his eyes with something that improved his sight, and so now he's promoting himself as somebody who can see. And maybe he was never really truly blind blind at all, but just mostly blind. Not completely blind, because if you're just mostly blind, you're still what? You can still partially see. So maybe that's the case, that he was never really truly born completely blind. So if he could... If he was 90% blind and Jesus did something to his eyes that made him only 88% blind, that's one way that they could refute it as being a miracle. Then they could just simply say, well, there's a naturalistic explanation for this. 
Or there's a third possibility, and this seems to be exactly what they're driving at. They seem to suggest that the whole blindness thing was in its entirety a hoax, a fraud. That he was never really born blind, and he was never really blind at all, but that his parents said he was blind, but he wasn't really. And so therefore, he wasn't really healed. Look at verse 19. They questioned the parents, questioned them saying, is this your son who you say was born blind? Now there's only, and, and the, the next question, the end of verse 19, then how does he now see? There are two questions there. Is this your son who you say was born blind? And how does he now see? So you see the insinuation there? Is that now they knew that these parents had claimed that their son was born blind. And now they're suggesting that the whole blindness thing from birth was just a hoax. It was just a fraud. The whole thing was a fabrication. They had perpetuated this notion that their son was born blind and he wasn't and he lived this way for decades. Now ask yourself, what could the parents possibly hope to gain from fabricating such an elaborate hoax? What could they possibly hope to gain? Their son would always live under this cloud of suspicion and everybody, and he would be destined to be a beggar because you can't you can't pretend to be blind and go out and work with your hands and do stuff productive because pretty soon somebody's going to catch on. So if you're going to pretend to be blind from birth, you're going to have to, you're destined to be a beggar. That's it. So you're destitute. And his family would be destitute because of this fraud that they're perpetuating. And not only that, but listen, everybody who walked past that beggar on their way into the temple for years, for decades, would ask themselves the same question that the disciples asked Jesus at the beginning of the chapter. Who sinned, this man or his parents? So the parents and the man would constantly live under the cloud of suspicion that the parents or the man had done something worthy of this blindness from birth. And neither the parents nor the man would ever be accepted into social circles. So what would they have to gain by fabricating a lie that their son was born blind? And then convincing this boy, who from from birth they have convinced him to pull off one of the greatest acting jobs in the history of humanity. Truly worthy of an Oscar. One of the best hoaxes possible. What could they possibly hope to gain from that? You see, I would love for the parents to just simply have said, what exactly are you accusing us of? And what do you think we have to gain by saying our son was born blind and keeping this notion in play for who knows how many decades this has been? To what end? To what profit? You see, once you start analyzing what they're suggesting, it seems quite absurd, doesn't it? Quite absurd. But listen, every theory... Every theory that is hatched in the heart of unbelieving man to explain away the truth is equally as absurd. Like the swoon theory to explain away the empty tomb and the resurrection of Christ. That Jesus on the cross never really died, that he just swooned, he passed out. And the Roman soldiers thought he was dead, and the people at the foot of the cross thought he was dead, and the people who took the body down thought he was dead, and all the officials thought he was dead, and everybody who examined the body thought he was dead, and everybody that prepared the body for burial thought he was dead, and everybody who put the body in the tomb thought he was dead, and the people that rolled the stone against the grave, uh, the, the mouth of the tomb thought he was dead, and that in the cool, damp environment of that wet, moist tomb, he revived. And he woke up, and with a, a pierced side and pierced hands and pierced feet and a back beaten to the point it looked like hamburger, he rolled that massive stone away from the tomb, the door's tomb, and he walked out and he fought off all those Roman guards and then walked seven miles on nail-pierced feet all the way back to Emmaus and convinced the disciples that he was the victor over death. And the disciples believed this and gave their lives for that. Is that absurd? That is truly absurd. So is the theory that the disciples stole the body and that they put the body in the wrong tomb and that the Roman authorities forgot where they stole, put the body and that the Roman guards guarded the wrong tomb and that the disciples came to the wrong tomb and that the women came to the wrong tomb that morning. 
Every theory to explain away the empty tomb is absurd. You know what other theory is absurd? Evolution. What an idiotic, stupid bunch of nonsense. The most unintelligent, irrational, illogical bunch of nonsense to ever come off of the lips and the heart of man, out of the unbelief of man's heart. The theory of evolution. Just a bunch of changing guesses and a theory that constantly changes with every discovery. Every theory to explain away the truth is just as absurd as what these Pharisees are trying to suggest here. But listen, every theory comes out of an unbelieving heart. And if you think that the person who does not believe in Jesus Christ is in any way unbiased or neutral, you are deceived. There is no such thing as a neutral individual. There is no such thing as an unbiased observer. You cannot be unbiased. Everybody in the world approaches every piece of evidence with preconceptions and presuppositions already in place. A grid work and a worldview through which every piece of evidence is interpreted. Everybody does it. The unbeliever approaches every piece of evidence with a bent toward darkness, a bias for the darkness, a love for the darkness. They already have a predisposed ambition and motivation to explain away every piece of evidence in terms that fit their worldview. Every believer, and I'm fine to confess this, is bent toward the light. How did I get bent in favor of and biased toward the light? By regeneration. So every heart is either bent by bondage, by, by virtue of its bondage to sin for darkness, or by virtue of its liberation in light by the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit. There is no such thing as a neutral observer to any fact or any idea. Everybody has a bias. The unbeliever has a bias, and he approaches the evidence with the motivation that he must interpret every piece of evidence in a way that fits what he is already bringing to the table. That's what the evolutionist does. And another conversation with a guy this week, and it was about, it was a political issue, global warming. But eventually I said to him, look, the issue is not your science, my science, your, 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 uh, your facts and my facts. That's not what the battle is between. It's a battle of worldviews. It's my worldview versus your worldview. You approach a piece of scientific evidence with the presupposition that the entire world hangs in the balance because it's all one series of miracles and accidents and that we can throw this whole thing into confusion with one, one accident. I approach the perspective from a Christian worldview. I believe God created a world that's versatile, that's resilient, that is here to stay, and is here for us to use. The issue is worldviews. We don't have opposite evidence. We have opposite worldviews through which we view the evidence. It's the same thing with these Pharisees. They have a bias and a bent toward the darkness. So what are they doing? All of the evidence that is in front of them, they are merely finding a way to explain away this evidence in terms of their own bias. That's what they're doing. All right, verse 20. Now look what his parents answer. Look what his parents answer. His parents answered them and said, We know that this is our son and that he was born blind. But how he now sees, we do not know. Or who opened his eyes, we do not know. Now, the Pharisees asked two questions. Is this your son whom you say was born blind? Now, behind that is really the assumption of two possibilities. Number one, this is not their son, and they would be able to identify him, so case of mistaken identity. Or this is their son, and you are simply saying that he was born blind. They didn't really ask him, was he born blind? They didn't really ask that question. They asked, is this your son? And second, how does he now see? So tell us, is this the one who is your son? And tell us how he sees. Now look what his parents answer. His parents answer the first question. Actually, they, they answer two questions, one of them that wasn't asked. Yes, this is our son. His parents, uh, sorry, verse 20. His parents answered and said, we know that this is our son. And second, that he was born blind. 
Now, they didn't ask him, was he born blind? But they throw that in there, right? Because the Pharisees had asked him, is this your son who you say was born blind? Now, they're going to kind of cover in their bases. This is our son, and yes, he was born blind. And look what they don't answer. There are two pieces of information that they are not willing to cough up. Verse 21, But how he now sees, we do not know. Or who opened his eyes, we do not know. There is part of this that they are willing to jump into, and there is part of this that they are wanting to stay far away from. What is it that they're willing to jump into? This is our son, he was born blind. They can say that without really any ramifications from the Jews whatsoever. But how he now sees, and who opened his eyes, to those two questions they answer, we do not know. Now listen, that was a lie. That was a lie. How do we know that that was a lie? Let me give you two reasons. Number one, are we supposed to believe, and were these Pharisees honestly supposed to believe, that this man had presented himself to his neighbors and answered their questions about who and how he got his sight, and that this man had told the Pharisees by who and how he got his sight, but that this man had never told his parents by who and how he got his sight? Are we supposed to believe that? You say, well, maybe the man was rushed off before he had a chance to see his parents. No, no, the Sabbath, the miracle took place on a Sabbath. The Jews would never have convened a council on the Sabbath. So this meeting is taking place most likely the next day or even later, but most likely the next day. So this blind man has more than ample opportunity. His parents have had more than ample opportunity here from their neighbors and from everybody else watching by whom and how their son had received his sight. But most importantly, look at verse 22 says, his parents said this because they were afraid of the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that if anyone confessed him to be the Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. How do we know they're lying? Because they were afraid. That's how. What had the Pharisees asked? Who gave your son sight? How did he receive his sight? We don't know. And they are terrified. Listen, if they truly did not know how their son had received his sight and who gave their son sight, they wouldn't have been afraid. They wouldn't have been afraid. You know why they're afraid? Because they'd have two pieces of information. They know how the Pharisees feel about Jesus and what they have decided to do to anybody who confesses him. They know that, and they know that Jesus is responsible for healing their son. If they didn't know why, how Jesus, that Jesus was responsible for healing their son, they wouldn't have been afraid at all. They wouldn't have been afraid. They could have just said, you know what, we truly don't know. But they were fearful because they knew who healed their son, and they knew how the Pharisees felt about he who healed their son. So these parents are lying. And they are fearful and they are full of fear because of what the Jews had already decided to do. Now, does, now ask, read verse 22 and ask yourself, does this sound like a bunch of unbiased inquisitors? Verse 22, his parents said this because they were afraid of the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that if anyone confessed him to be the Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Does that sound unbiased? Does that sound like people who are really after the truth? Or does that sound like a group of people who are there to cover up the truth? They're there to cover up the truth. This is the bias of unbelief. This is what unbelievers are always seeking to do, Romans 1 says. Suppress the truth in unrighteousness. They know what is true. They can see what is true. They have logic. They have reason. They have rationality. They have all the evidence that we have. They suppress it and they hold it down in unrighteousness so that they can live unrighteous and wicked lives. Deceiving themselves into thinking that they can escape the judgment to come because they live in wicked unbelief. That is the unbias, or that is the bias of unbelief. And furthermore, they throw their son to to the wolves, which is why they say in verse 21, ask him, he is of age, he will speak for himself. They don't want to say anything about it. Ask him, he'll hang himself. I mean, he'll testify for himself. 
You just ask him how this happened. Don't ask us. We don't know. Ask him. You ask him. They'll push all of this off onto their son. We're willing to admit he's our son. We're willing to admit that he was born blind. But we're not going to stand up for him. And we're not going to stand up for the one who gave him sight. That's cowardice, isn't it? Man, thanks, Mom. Thanks, Dad. Don't think I won't remember that come Mother's Day and Father's Day. Throwing me under the bus like that? They put that boy out there just to speak for himself. He is of age. By the way, in Jewish culture, you were of age at any time past the age of 13. That was considered of age. Now, this is not a teenager. From what we read here, all the evidence would suggest that he was older than a teenager. He's old enough to have a pretty good understanding of the Old Testament. We're going to see that in the next couple of weeks. A pretty good understanding of the Old Testament. A pretty good grasp of theology. And he's bold. And he's standing in front of people. And, and he can hold his own under pressure. Even with the fear that he had every right to fear, he holds his own under pressure to testify about Christ. So this is probably somebody who's maybe in his 20s or 30s or even later. He is of age asking him. His parents push him right under the bus. Let him testify for himself. Don't ask us. We wash, like Pilate, we wash our hands of this. We want nothing to do with this. Son, you're on your own. Why did they fear that? Why did they say that? Because the Jews had already decided if anybody confesses Jesus to be the Christ, we are going to unsynagogue. That's the word literally in the Greek, and that's how it reads. Unsynagogue him. Kick him out. This was the worst conceivable punishment for a Jew to undergo was to be unsynagogue. It wasn't like today where you get kicked out of one church, you just walk down the street and go to the next one, and they let you in and make you a worship leader without asking any questions. It's not like that at all. Today, that's our environment. Back then, that wasn't it. You got unsynagogued, you were out. You were cut off from the religious life of the community, the social life, all the fellowship. You weren't invited in. And listen, this boy and his parents were destitute and poor. This family was so poor that their son had to resort to begging. There was not even any kind of family wealth that, that he could rely upon. He is, he is, is reduced to begging. As a beggar in Israel, you would starve to death if you were unsynagogued. And you know why? Because as they walked into the temple, everybody knew he is unsynagogued and nobody would give him anything. You couldn't be hired. You didn't fellowship with anybody. You didn't get invited to anything. To be poor is one thing. To be poor and to be unsynagogued? That was the, that was the worst. You can see how serious it is in John 16 verse 2 when Jesus said, they will, they will cast you out and they will make you, speaking to the disciples, they will make you outcast from the synagogue, and there's coming a day when they will kill you and think they are doing God's service. And there the Lord Jesus puts side by side being unsynagogued and being killed. Those two things were the two worst conceivable situations for a Jew to endure. To be killed, to be unsynagogued, wow, which do you choose? If you were a Jew, you would almost rather die than be unsynagogued. So you and I can understand their fear, right? Now listen to me and listen carefully. We can understand their fear, but we cannot justify or excuse their fear. At this point, we could all make ourselves feel really good by jumping on the bandwagon and piling on these parents, right? What cowards, what fearful wimps. Why didn't they stand up? Look what Jesus had done. Look what God had done. Why didn't they follow David's advice and tell of the wondrous works of the Lord from one generation to the next and boldly proclaim His goodness and His majesty and His greatness and His mighty deeds? Why didn't they do that? And we could pile on them, but listen, I would suspect that every person in this room, myself included, has cowered before far less hostility and opposition than what we read here. We cannot excuse what they did. We can understand it, but we cannot excuse it. And we have been quiet and silent in the face of far less than this. And any time that we are quiet or silent when we ought to tell what God has done for us or what God has done through us, or to proclaim the gospel, or to stand up for truth, or to be bold in our witness for Christ, 
we are doing the, we are falling into the very same snare that these parents fell into. It's Proverbs, I think it's 29 verse 25. The fear of man is a snare, but he who trusts in the Lord will be exalted. The fear of man is a snare. You see, you can fear one of two things. You can either fear man or you can fear God, but you cannot fear both at the same time. To fear God is to make you bold in the face of men. To fear man is to make you timid in the presence of God. That's your choice. Fear man or fear God. So rather than piling on the parents and suggesting that they are cowards and we are so much better than they, let's let these parents be to us a gentle rebuke and an evidence of what a timid and coward heart looks like and let us not emulate it. And let us allow them to remind us to be bold in the presence of hostile witnesses even. And listen, friends, the environment for Christians is getting more and more hostile with each passing day. And all of us are going to have to decide, are we going to be bold in the presence of God and before men, or are we going to fear men and be timid for our faith and the truth? Let us be bold and not timid. Let us not fall into the same snare that these parents fell into. Let's pray together. Our Father, like the Apostle Paul, we pray that you would give us boldness to boldly proclaim the gospel, the mysteries of our God, the truth of Scripture, the truth of your word, to never cower even in the face of the most hostile opposition. We thank you, Father, that you have forgiven us for our sin and for times when we have been timid and cowardly and fearful. We pray that you would make us bold in the face of men and to boldly proclaim the truth of the gospel, to stand on that truth, to be convinced of it. We thank you that you have bent our hearts away from darkness to light and that it is by the sovereign and regenerating work of your Holy Spirit that we have life, that we have new hearts, and that we have eyes to see. We pray that you would make us bold proclaimers and witnesses of that truth and of the fact that we now see by your grace. Keep us faithful, we pray, to the gospel, that you might be glorified in and through your church and through your people, both now and forevermore, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.